Hey, y'all, it's Nick Allen, the voice and producer of the Behind the Prop podcast. Just popping in here real quick to say this is a very special episode of the show. Bobby and Wally went out to Eastern Kentucky University to record this one live in front of a college student audience. EKU asked Behind the Prop to come out and speak to their campus of over 250 aviation students at their spring safety stand down. This is that recording of the show, and it was presented live on March 24th, 2023. So we took the audio from it. It's a little spotty at times. You'll hear the audio quality isn't necessarily the best, but bear with us. There's some really, really good content in here. You'll learn a lot and have some fun too. And by the way, before I do start this show for you, if you ever have any interest in having Bobby or Wally out for an event, don't hesitate to shoot Bobby an email. That's bobby at behindtheprop.com. All right. Thanks for listening. Let's roll. Clear prop. Star 738, Cherokee number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. One Charlie Bravo, Rakesford runway C5, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? Fantastic as always. Hopefully, you guys have heard the show and heard that intro many times. Um, I got real dark all of a sudden, which is interesting. But how many of you have listened to the show? You're not in control of people already hearing it. Awesome. We love to uh, see the people listen to the show. We uh, started the show to give back to aviation and are humbled that it's listened to worldwide every day. It's just two guys that sit in my office and record a show, and we don't have to know who's listening. Uh, so thanks for listening to the show. Uh, I'm Bobby Goss. This is Wally Bowler. And we are uh, humbled that he asked to come here and talk to you. It was uh, Jamie reached out via LinkedIn probably in October. And her message either got cut off or it was short. It said something like, hey, I was wondering. And I said, well, what were you wondering? And she said, y'all like to come to Eastern Kentucky University. And, of course, we said yes. And here we are today, five months later. So hopefully we put together some good content uh, to share with you. And... Uh, at the end, midway through, we're going to start asking questions. You guys get involved. You girls get involved. We got a lot of t-shirts, stickers, mugs, other things to give away for those that participate. Um, and we'll try to touch on almost all the topics that we got in your spreadsheet. But to start, let's talk a little bit more about the intro that uh, Wayne gave, and I'll let Wally just go off a little bit more about this history. I just realized that it was 40 years ago this month I got my flight instructor certificate, March of 1983. And I was telling Bobby this morning over breakfast, I, I worked at a pizza place, Johnny's Pizza in Monroe, Louisiana. Best pizza ever. If you're ever in Monroe, go to Johnny's Pizza. Um, we, they got to sweep the kitchens, got everything on it. And being in Louisiana, they also have to sweep the swamp, crawfish, shrimp, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, um, I went off. Sorry about that. But anyway, I I quit my job at Johnny's Pizza to become a flight instructor. And and I realized that was 40 years ago. I haven't had a job since. I have not had a job. Um, you know, I get to talk to a lot of young people. And I, when I say young, I mean as, as, as young as kindergarten. And, and what I say to these people is you got to go where your heart is. If your heart is uh, uh, numbers, I don't know, be an accountant. If your heart is kids, be a teacher. Um, I knew very early on that airplanes were my thing. Um, I actually started out in college as a music major. 
doing my music stuff and, and in my university at aviation program. And I said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take private pilot ground school. And I did, it was Aviation 111. It was in room 240 at Stubbs Hall at the University of Louisiana Monroe. It was 9 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. When I left that class, that first day, I walked to the registrar's office and I changed my major to aviation. I was scared to go home and tell my parents that I lived at home. And so um, finally about two or three weeks later over dinner, I, I, <laughs> I mustered up the courage. And I said, uh, I got something I need to tell you. And they both looked up and I said, I changed my major. And, and uh, I said, to what? And I said, aviation. And my father said, well, it beats working. And it just went on. And I thought, wow, that went pretty well. Um, both my daughters got into it, and, and I did not push them. I did not push them. We, I hadn't been in a little airplane in forever. And uh, my oldest daughter one day said, uh, Dad, do you think I could take flying lessons? And we were driving, and I almost, my car almost went off the road. I'm like, you want to do what? And she said, yeah, I think I can take flying lessons. So she started taking flying lessons, and I got back into general aviation. And the day that I knew that it was going to be good for her, we were, we were flying a 172, and she's, she's pre-flighting. She's up on the wing. She opens up the, the gas cap, and she's looking down in there. And she turns around, and she looks at me, and she goes, Dad, is it bad that I like the smell of that gas? And I just got this big grin, and I said, that's my girl. Um, so, you know, that's, that's my story. I, uh, so I've been back in the general aviation, I don't know, 8, 10, something years ago. Um, became a, a designated examiner. In, by Houston standards, I'm still one of the new guys. I've only been doing about seven years or so. I've given about 800 check rides. And, and again, I, I still feel like I'm one of the new guys as far as doing that. But I have, uh, you know, teaching has been a passion of mine. Uh, every airplane I've flown at Continental United Airlines, I've been a check pilot uh, from the 727, 37, 57, 67, and now 777. Um, my last trip was with a, with a, a new hire uh, from, from Houston to Honolulu. And there's, it's just, there's just something that is so cool to be able to take someone in a 777 with 378 people in the back and uh, they've never landed it before. We're going to go fly eight hours and go land in Honolulu. That's, that is just, to me, I still think, man, that's cool. That is so cool. So to say I get to go to work and I get to fly airplanes, and you know what? Twice a month, they put money in my bank account. And that's kind of cool, too. So anyway, so I'll let, I'll let Bobby, I, I probably talk too much, but anyway. So what I like to tell people is between the two of us, we have about 28,500 hours of flight time. I only have about 480 of those hours. So he's definitely a professional pilot. But how many of you in this room have more than 400 hours of flight time? They're instructors. Um, it's still a pretty big number in general aviation to have 400 plus hours uh, of flight time as a guy who started when he was 42 years old. So. Um, between us, we have a lot of flight time. Wally has all that experience. But at, at the flight school that I own, it's similar in size to, to y'all's school. I have 20 airplanes, 
we have about 18 instructors and probably about 200 students that fly on a regular basis. And I did a little math coming up here. I probably, since I bought the flight school, have overseen about 60,000 hours of flight time at my flight school, which is a lot to deal with. People coming and going, you guys will come and go here and move on to your next thing, and the flight school and the operations will continue. And you need to thank the people that make that happen for you from dentists to everybody that does anything to help those planes stand in the air for you guys. But I did always want to fly. My wife was absolutely against it. She didn't want to let, ever let me fly. It was expensive. She thought you were going to crash the plane if you flew and uh, never wanted me to do it. And then one day, I guess, uh, 20-something years into our marriage, I broke her down and she let me go take that first lesson. And it changed my life. Um, hopefully you guys are passionate about what you're doing. And hopefully you want to pursue uh, a career in aviation, but it is the best time in the world to become a pilot. Absolutely. There, you know, when I got into aviation, there were no jobs. I just got in it because I like the smell of avgas, and, and I like flying airplanes. And I, I, I tell people when I give them a, uh, a check ride, don't, don't go sniff avgas, okay? All right. I'm holding that good. Well, it does smell good. Anyway. Um, I think someone makes a candle that smells like cab gas, if I'm not mistaken, or jet fuel, somebody. I think that's kind of cool. Um, but, uh, you know, I tell, especially a private pilot candidate, okay, they, they just, I'm, I'm issuing a private pilot certificate, and I'll, I'll say to them, what next? And so many times they will say, I start instrument training tomorrow. And, and I say, okay, well, that's, that's cool, but don't forget to have some fun. You know, I think, I think, I, I don't know if we pulled everybody and said, why are you doing this? I would hope you're doing this because you like airplanes. I hope you're not looking at it and saying, well, I saw that airline pilots make this much money and they have this many days off a month. And, um, and it's, you know, there, there are jobs. Um, that's true, but I hope you're doing it because you like airplanes. I, I never envisioned being an airline pilot. I thought, man, flying a Fleeman Flying Center, flying charter in a Baron, and maybe, maybe if I grew up, I'd get to fly something that burned jet fuel, like a King Air or something like that. That, that was my career. That was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And then just through circumstances, the commuters started hiring. I went and flew for a Royal Airlines flying in Embraer 120. This was January of 1986. $12 an hour. $12 an hour. Um, and uh, 65 hours was our pay guarantee. Do the math. That's $780 a month. And back in 1986, even $780 a month was not very much money. So uh, me and my 16 roommates, not really, uh, there were four of us that, that had an apartment together. Um, we made it work, and then after a year, I moved to the right seat of a G1, which held 24 passengers, and I went from $12 an hour to $18 an hour. I got a 50% pay rate. But the really cool thing was that uh, the G1 had a flight attendant, so we didn't, I didn't have to do the welcome report safety the little speech that we had to get, so, so it 
So that was kind of cool. Um, I don't remember him going. That's all right. So the, the, the way Wally and I met was actually Wally gave me my, my instrument check right in April of 2020, uh, uh, I guess it was 17, 2017. So I took my instrument check right with Wally, scared to death of this man, right? He had uh, all the control, he had all the ability to pass or fail me. My mic with. Um, can you hear me? Hello? Um, so I was scared that of all, and then uh, I did a really good check ride. I was the luckiest instrument pilot in the world. The winds were calm at all seven airports that I was worried we might go to. It was crystal clear day. Um, there was not a lick of wind, not a cloud in the sky, and uh, I think he said it was a boring check ride, which I've learned is a very good instrument check ride. If it's boring, it's a very good check ride. So I really just knew what Wally as a DPE. I kept flying, I kept learning how to fly, I kept getting better. And then ultimately I did I did want to lease back an airplane to the fly school and maybe become a commercial pilot. I was working for Dell Technologies at the time, selling hardware to big companies, big oil and gas companies in Houston. And uh, never thought I would do much more than just piddle in aviation. And I made the mistake of asking the previous owner how much he wanted for the whole thing. And uh, the next day we had a letter of intent drafted up. I bought the flight school. And I think that's one of those things where everybody says, hey, buy a flight school is going to be really fun. And it's not really fun every day. Uh, we've been some metal. Luckily, no one's been hurt. But the one thing that I care the most about, and people, people hear it every day at the flight school, is safety. And this is the safety sand down. And you guys are girls are all young. Hopefully you haven't seen anything devastating yet, um, but if you're around aviation long enough, you're going to. And a lot of you ask questions about things that pilots have done, mistakes that they've made, and how do we prevent those. And that's really what Wally and I want to talk about today. And we want to share some lessons and share some stories from behind the problem. And then hopefully um, you'll continue to tune in and, and hear more about what we do to get back to general aviation. Um, and if you are a fan of aviation, I would say people like Wally who have come back to general aviation uh, really hate that they left it. So stay involved some way, somehow. Give back, uh, no matter what your job is in the future. Uh, I fly very rarely anymore on commercial airlines, but I have two or three times in the past couple weeks. And everybody sitting up front in those Embraer 170s and 145s that I've flown in, they went to the flight school just like this. They got their chops just like you had, and they probably want to get back to aviation in some way. Um, I also saw a lot of first officers sitting in restaurants and airports the last weeks, waiting to be called to go do that flight uh, that they've been waiting on for days. So get back to aviation. So safety, safety is the message today. Uh, based on all the stuff we saw in the spreadsheet of the questions that we got asked, we're going to start with talking about external pressures. Uh, Kentucky appears to be a pretty gloomy place. It looks like Seattle right now, but I know it's not like that all the time. I was actually born in Huntington, West Virginia, so uh, I'm not too far from my hometown. And uh, the only thing I can think of is it's got to be a lot colder here than it is in Houston. But uh, as a flight school owner, I see a lot of external pressures that are unnecessary. I uh, got a text message this morning from someone who's dying to take their check ride, and I know that I'm ready to take their check ride. And they ask me if there's a check ride slot available, and they're not ready. Um, 
How many of you have, by show of hands, how many of you have had external pressures to get done with a private pilot certificate in a certain number of hours? Anybody put pressure on you to get done with Save money, maybe. How about solo? What's the solo number around? What's the average? Just scream it out. What's the average? Solo. 15, 20. 15, 20. I was like, I was like 33 hours. I kept telling the CFI, you're not allowed to get up in the aircraft. I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I was scared. Wally, what did you solo? 25 or 30. All right. Wally, what did you solo? I'm almost ashamed to say it, but, but where... Where I was learning to fly, I mean, it was usually like seven. I think my, I think I was eight point six. Um, but I, I know I didn't know a lot of stuff. There was a lot of stuff I didn't know how to do. Uh, there was no rhythm test. You know, it was just kind of a. Uh, I don't know. I think a lot of people hear that at my flight school, and they like, wow, well, I should go solo at eight or twenty twenty five. At our airport, we're in class elevator space. We have three runways. Um, we have a short runway, we have a water runway, which actually gets quite a bit of traffic on it. And then we have a big runway that probably has, I'm gonna guess, somewhere between 50 and 70 jet landings a day. Yeah, so a very, very high throughput of activity. And then you think I have 20 planes to get at least five lessons. So we have 100 flights a day that probably land four or five times. So my school does 500 landings a day at that airport. It's very, very, very busy. And I'm one of four flight schools at that airport. So for someone to realistically believe that they're going to solo there in eight hours, it's just unrealistic um, because of the number of things that can be thrown at them. But we, we hear it and we feel it all the time, the external pressures of, of wanting to go to get their itis. Um, it's, it's almost... It's almost embarrassing sometimes the things that I hear outside my office of what people are trying to accomplish to get something done that's really not a requirement, right? Like, um, we joke on the podcast that if you were going to get engaged in another city and your girlfriend or boyfriend were waiting out there, that would be a big deal. That would, that would be something that might drive you to, to take some chances. But to just get a less involved um, isn't worth it. And to get engaged in waiting on the day as well. Um, the most that I hear about, though, really is the pressure to get done with the radio. We joke about the solo and the private all the time, but how many of you didn't, or how many of you got your commercial rating in less than 200 hours? Very, very few. And that's because they did it at 141, and they probably flew a sim quite a bit. It's really, really rare. And the, the one thing that I try to level set everyone on is that you're probably going to get your commercial no matter when you solo, no matter when you got your private, between 200 and 250. That's when we all get it. And you're probably not going to go to the airlines until when? 1,000 to 1,500. There are these de facto things that are going to happen. Hopefully, as you guys and girls become instructors, you can try to slow the roll a little bit because we don't want those accidents to happen. Um, well, what, what are some of the external pressures you feel as a DPE? Or that people tell you and check rides that make you have pause? You know, I, I see uh, we have two major airline bases in Houston, so I give a lot of check rides to airline kids, um, whether their parents are, are uh, United Airlines, it's kind of the north side of Houston where we are, and then uh, Southwest Airlines has a base down in Hobby. 
Um, so, you know, there are a lot of a lot of airline kids that come in, and um, some of them are really into it, but some of them are not. And you can tell that it's it's maybe mom or dad who's um, kind of driving this ship here, and maybe they really don't want to do that. Um, young man, just just last week, um, he he told me his father was a, a United pilot. Uh, oh, okay. Well, what does he fly? He goes. 747, and, and I said, well, you don't fly 747 because we don't have 747s at United. I thought that was kind of weird. I mean, this, this kid is telling me his father flies for United, but he, he doesn't know what airplane he flies. Um, and at the end of the day, it, it didn't go very successful. Um, at the end of the day, I, I, I had a real hard time with you, man. I said, is this really... I mean, are you following your heart here? And um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know where this is going to go with this young man. Um, um, he got some, you know, he didn't meet the standard. Okay, he failed. All right. And um, I feel like the, the pressure was coming from home. I mean, he, there, there were tears. He was begging me, and uh, he was afraid to go home. But at the end of the day. If he would have gone flew flown, I mean, he, he may have killed people, all right? And, and then, um, you know, that, that's not good. What is our goal when we get in an airplane? Land it safely. Okay. Land it safely. Any, anything else? You guys know what WWW stands for? Have you ever seen that? Oh, come on. Flying ground. WWW, you've never seen that? that? That's what everybody thinks it stands for is World Wide Web. What it really stands for is Wally's Words of Wisdom. Okay, so I'm going to give you some Wally's Words of Wisdom. wisdom. Someone said to land it safely. That's, that's kind of the, the book answer. Our goal is to not die. Okay, to not die. When we get in an airplane, we don't want to die. Are we taking a risk by getting in an airplane? Yeah, absolutely. So, do we take risks in life? Okay, we went to Starbucks this morning, and I got a venti latte. Well, you're one of those foo foo drinks. He, he, he shoves up right behind me, like a, a black pipes with no room. And I'm like, man, I wish I could drink black coffee. My life would be so much easier if I could do that. Um, anyway, uh, Am I taking a risk by going to Starbucks and getting a latte? I am. I mean, what if that that Starbucks person, you know, went off the, the rails and, and put a little bit of cyanide in there? I could be dead right now. So it is a risk, is it not? Going to a restaurant and buying food is a risk. Is that crazy? <laughs> oh, okay, a little bourbon. How's that? It's a risk that we're willing to accept. Um, so, coffee story. Well, I'll tell you just a little funny coffee story. So, uh, uh, this is back, I was flying to 737, I'm leaving San Francisco one morning, flying to Houston. And uh, a flight attendant comes up, first day on the job. Male flight attendant, if, I, I'm not gonna, I, I'm just gonna tell you the way it was. Uh, a young man was an Asian flight attendant. 
And, and I used to say, I, I heard a flight attendant say this, I thought it was kind of cool. Um, we used to have a little, little, little things to cream, you know, the mini moves. And uh, so I used to order my coffee, I'd say coffee, two moves, and a blue. It was too many moves, and a, you know, blue, whatever that stuff is. And uh, so he comes up and he says, can I get you anything? And so first officer orders something. I say, yeah, coffee, two moves, and a blue. And he goes back. And then this female flight attendant comes up and says, what did you say to him? I said, well, I just, I just told her, oh, she says, he's in the galley crying. And I went, oh, man. I said, I, I told him two moves and a blue. And he didn't understand it. And I think his culture was that not to, I don't know, he, he didn't feel comfortable saying, what the hell do you mean? He didn't say that. He just went back. And, and she, she was telling me, she said, so he came on this airplane and he'll do everything I tell him to. And the first job I gave him to do was go ask the cockpit what they want to drink. And he feels like he failed. I mean, his, his first day out of training and, and he, he failed. So I had to go back and say, hey, it's all right. If you ever don't understand what we mean, just ask. Um, um, so I just, I got one off on a tangent. And you drink rock, you get into the black days as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're, we're talking about safety. So, you know, our, our, our goal in the airplane is to not die, okay? So what do we do on every flight? We want to stack the deck. We want to stack the deck in our favor. At the end of the day, we are taking a chance by getting in that, that airplane, okay? Something bad could happen. But, you know, we, we do everything I can. You have a checklist, you have procedures, you have dispatch procedures, um, and, you know, that's kind of what we're going to talk about. We can talk a little bit about job's procedure, but aside about the, the, there's a risk portfolio or a risk checklist that you use, there's, there's really not enough that you can do every flight, every time, to be as safe as you can possibly be. And we have a couple stories that I'm going to share from my class school that hopefully will never happen here, but they're real people that had no idea that they were going to make the mistakes they made. And it, it's, it's amazing that you guys asked a lot of the questions that apply to this first story. You know, what, what mistakes did these pilots make that really could have cost them their lives? And, I, I hope and pray every day that I'm not going to have to call anybody's parents or anybody's family and let them know that we, we've had a major incident. But this was the day that almost was that day. So it was about a year ago, right now. And uh, CFI, tons of time, probably had 800 hours of dual, had a restricted ATP, much like many of you will probably leave here with, and was looking at going to the airlines. The funny thing was, was he had that student Hopefully none of y'all are that student. But it was that student that was always wanting to go, no matter what. Thunderstorm outside, we'll wait. We'll go. We're going to get there. Forecast thunderstorms for three days straight. We're going to wait. We'll go. I want to see what it's like to fly. Just take me up. Let's go. Very anxious. His wife was actually a flight attendant for United. And he hoped to be in the cockpit one day. And he was doing everything he could 
to create external pressures for everyone else. He just wanted to hurry. So this young man that was a flag striker on my team uh, was susceptible to his pressures. And that day was a day where in Houston, if you've never been there, we joke often that you can see all four seasons in one day. And this was one of those days. Woke up in the morning, I think I was wearing shorts and a Columbia like I am now, and I got to the flight school and it was 70 degrees outside. But we all knew it was going to get colder that day. And there was a cold front coming through the state. And by probably 9 a.m., it was 60 degrees. By 10 a.m., it was 40 degrees. And no one was flying because in, in Texas, that's a really windy day. We all know that's going to be a windy day. And uh, the clouds were coming in. And they, they said they were going to try it. They said they were going to fly this instrument flight and they were going to get some approaches done. So they get dispatched, they follow all the procedures, they didn't break any rules, my dispatch team didn't break any rules, but there's a certain level of common sense that starts saying that the rules cover every possibility that can happen. And they just can't. You can't make enough rules. And if you made enough rules, no one would ever leave, right? No one would ever get dispatched. So the temperature at the time that they left was eight degrees Celsius. And the cloud cover was in, it was marginal VFR, I think it was 24, 2,500 feet. And they were, they followed a flight plan at 3,000 feet. By the time they got done pre-flighting, the, the, we didn't know until afterwards, but by the time they got done pre-flighting, they were dispatched, or they were being, being leaving my, my tarmac at about seven degrees Celsius. So the, 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 the post-flight, the, the, the examination of all this is where would go nice and be if it was seven degrees Celsius and it was overcast at 2,400 feet? So they followed a flight plan for 3,000 feet. So the, the ice is going to be really, really close, right? The first question I ask everybody when I tell the story is what's, what's your personal minimum for ice? And most people tell me, well, a few thousand feet. Well, what's a few thousand feet? Is it a few thousand feet from where you're going to fly? Is it a few thousand feet from the ground? What does that mean? And when you say a few thousand feet, that, that tells me that there's a big swath of space between really what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do, right? And a personal minimum should be a hard deck. And so they didn't have a hard deck that day. They, and they definitely weren't thinking. And the story really goes, well, there was a temperature inversion. Anybody willing to risk your life on a potential temperature inversion? Like, let's jump in an aluminum plane and fly within a few hundred feet of where an icy could be because somebody told me there was a temperature inversion. It's really warmer up there. If God's not the one telling me that, I ain't getting in that plane. I don't have to fly. I'm not going to be a professional pilot. My icing rule is 10,000 feet from, the, from me which means I'm never going to fly if there's visible moisture and any freezing possibility below 10,000 feet. I can drive where I'm going. Now, that may be my luxury. I'm not being asked to go fly, but I'm never going to fly a plane that doesn't have icing equipment if I'm within 10,000 feet. It's a hard death for me. Those guys didn't have it. So they took off. They, they, they said it was warm enough, and they got to 3,000 feet, and they were literally flying to an airport that's 33 miles away, 33 miles away. And they picked up icing about halfway there. 
They chose to continue and they talked to ATC. They, they got lower. They thought getting lower would help them. The ice continued to build and they got really lucky in landed. And they had to make that infamous phone call they didn't want to make and they called me. They said, hey, we picked up icing. We don't know how we're going to get back. And I said, well, just stay there. This is not good weather. We'll figure out how to get you home. Again, another phone call about two hours later. Guess what? They tried to come back. Any reason to try and come back? Like, this isn't, not, this isn't any more like maybe there's a temperature inversion. I flew through ice, and I think I'm going to try and get the plane back, right? And that's a young, scared, unfortunately immature young man who I guess was worried that I was going to be mad at him. I would have been really mad at him if he would have crashed and died, right? They tried again about an hour later. What happens when a cold front comes through even Kentucky? Does it get warmer later in the day, or does it get colder later in the day? It just kept getting colder, colder. So they made three attempts to fly another icing that day, and ultimately Uber home from 35 miles away and left my plane there covered in ice. And that was the right, that was the only right decision we made that day. And it actually took us three more days for all that ice to leave the, the area, so we could go back and get that aircraft. But the, the, the story goes that they, because of the temperature inversion, they made that decision to go. And I'm strongly certain that the reason they made that decision to go was because that student convinced that flight instructor to take that flight. Everything else is working against them, right? And as you, as you think back, whoever asked the questions, there was many of you that asked the questions, hey, talk about or tell us about pilots' decisions that caused an accident that they shouldn't have made. That's the one you all need to reflect on, no matter what. Whether it's storm, whether it's ice, whether it's winds beyond your personal minimums, whether it's winds in your minimums but not their minimums, because they're going to want to be like you. And if you can fly 15 knots across wind, and they can't, but they go rent a plane from twice to ABC, they're going to have to land. And you said land safely, but we want to make sure they live, right? So those external pressures that day for this flight instructor and this student were so on the borderline of dangerous that they, they couldn't see past the goal of getting that flight done. I have one more story, but you have a story that you want to tell from? Yeah, back in my uh, 727 days, we used to have quarterly standard meetings, standards meetings. And, you know, it's, we, we would talk about procedures, do we need to change this procedure, this kind of stuff. And you know, we were discussing something, um, and uh, we, you know, somebody said, "Well, look, we can change the checklist to do this and this and this." And our, our fleet manager on, on that airplane, uh, Steve Williams was his name, had the just the greatest quote. He just said, "Guys, you can't checklist common sense." Okay, so common sense needs to come in this. So the speed limit on the interstate might be 65. But if you're, it's a driving rainstorm, maybe 65 is not the right speed to be going. Maybe we ought to be going 55. And I know in Houston, if you're on, driving 65 on, on one of the major roads, you're a danger too because everybody else is doing 80. You better, you better fit in with the flow of traffic. Um, what percentage of general aviation accidents do you think have fuel as one of the causal effects. 
Okay. 46%. Okay. So can we... Fuel is that important? Fuel is important. You know, will an airplane fly overweight? Well, you're... I, sorry, guys, but your airplanes, your 172s, they'll fly 100 pounds overweight. They will. I've never done it, but I've been told that they will. They won't fly without fuel. Okay. And I'm not saying go fly them overweight, but I'm saying fuel is really important. I'm going to tell you a quick story. This is me. Okay. This would have been about 1982. I have an instrument rating. I don't know if I have my commercial, but um, a friend's brother asked me if I could fly him out to Midland, Odessa, Texas. Um, with his girlfriend because he, she needed to go, uh, it was a divorce, child custody thing. She needed to go pick up her kid. And I said, yeah, yeah, we can do that. So we're going to go from Monroe, Louisiana to Midland, Odessa, Texas. Um, I happened to work at the FBO and flight school as a lineman, fueling airplanes. I wasn't going to see if I there yet. Um, uh, and this is back in, before four flight. And you, you, you actually have to call someone up on the phone and get a weather briefing and get winds aloft and get the C6B and figure out how long it was going to you know, take you and all this stuff. And the airplane that we were going to go was IFR equipped. And, and back in the day, uh, IFR equipped, I mean, we had two VORs. That was it. And an ADF. Two VORs and an ADF. Didn't even have DME. Certainly GPS didn't even exist in the day. Um, so anyway, no idea what our ground speed was. I mean, there was no ground speed readout. Anyway, I get out to the airport. Um, it was on a Sunday morning, well ahead of the other people. And when I go and I look in the fuel tank, and it's, it's a Warrior, Piper Warrior, which has um, 48 usable gallons of fuel. And I look in the tank, and one side was completely full. The other one wasn't quite full. It was almost full. I mean, it was real close, and I'm looking at this, and I'm going, uh, it, was, it was so early that the FBO hadn't even opened up yet. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, I had keys because I worked there. I can go inside. I can go get the key to the fuel truck. I can start the fuel truck up. It was cold. Let it warm up, and I can drive over, and I can put fuel in this airplane. But it's going to take me 30 minutes to do all that. And I thought, well, and I got the time. Let me go do it. So I go, I get in the truck, I come over car around the airplane, I put fuel inside. I took two gallons. Two gallons of fuel. Okay, we put the truck back, people show up. We get an airplane. We go. We go to Midland Odessa. I, I don't know where my head was. I was stupid. I was really, really stupid. We landed in Midland Odessa. The guy comes up to fuel us. He puts in 46.4 gallons of fuel. They do the math. 48 minus 46.4, 1.6. I put two gallons in before we left. The lineman, the lineman there goes, holy crap, how much fuel does this airplane hold? And I, I being pretty witty and on top of things, I go, I just got off things that old 74. And he goes, oh, all right. So I, I'm thinking, oh my God. I mean, had I not put the two gallons in, we would have crashed. 
or we wouldn't want to destroy the robot. Okay? How many of those 46% of those people, how many of those people you think wake up in the morning and say, yeah, I think I'll go run an airplane out of fuel today? Zero. Zero? Yeah. Okay. What percentage of those people you think are probably pretty good people? They, they made a bad, bad mistake. Okay. I was stupid. I was young and dumb. And by the grace of God, I'm here to tell that story to you. I, I, I'm getting chills telling that story. I know. I'm dead. You don't come back from dead. And I don't know. Maybe the best case, we land in a field and I'm probably I'm a high school band director somewhere right now rather than an airline pilot. So I ask people on instrument check rides, one of the questions, I'll, I'll, I'll pose a question, and I will, I'll put, I'll get on the whiteboard, and I'll go one, two, three, four, five. And I'll say, okay, I'm gonna ask you a question, and I need all five of these answers. I'm gonna give you the first answer, and I'm gonna give you the second answer, and you're gonna give me three, four, and five. And if you don't get them, we are done, you fail. You can see the anxiety go up. And it's, it's, okay, if ATC gives you a reroute, or ATC gives you holding, or uh, ATC gives you a lower than expected altitude, what are the five things that you're gonna think about? What are the five things you're gonna think about? Number one is fuel. Number two is fuel. Number three is fuel. Number four is fuel. Number five is fuel. You guys passed me check, right? Well, you got to pass that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, a scary story. And my my personal indictment is I took my family to New Brunswick from, from Houston. It's probably an hour and 30 minute flight. In a way, too, I had, I had to take fuel out of the plane so that we could bring all of the school clothes we were going to shop for and bring them back. So I took some fuel out. My kids are small. My wife's small. I'm the, I'm the fat family member. And they, uh, I wanted to show my son how he took fuel out. So we have this nice little cycling tool and took five gallons out of the right side, took five gallons out of the left side, and... My son was struggling to get this five-gallon jug of fuel off his ladder, and I helped him. And we finished the free flight. We do our walk around. My family gets the plane. You're, you're the only people that ever sort of them. But I get the plane, G1000, take off, flying there, and the left tank is like almost empty, about halfway there. And I panicked because I knew exactly what happened. Anybody know what that happened? My damn son left the gas cap on. Not me, my son. But it wasn't my son, it was me. And I panicked, I'm halfway there. What would I do? How would I solve this problem? I'm definitely not gonna tell anyone. I gotta be a man about this, right? So I flipped it to the right tank to make sure I only used the right tank and that it wouldn't siphon out from the right tank to the left tank and I'll blow away. I've been to New Bronzeville maybe four times and never been able to have a fuel truck help me there for whatever reason. I pull up this time, guess what happens? 
There's spring fuel trucks and six young men there to give me gas. And I couldn't get out of that plane fast enough to jump up there and put that gas cap on quick enough to try and save face. But it's very dangerous, right? Fuel, as Wally said, are the first five things that you need to worry about. Um, and it's, I'm not perfect, but I shouldn't let that happen for sure. And you gotta make sure that you make, you don't, you don't intentionally make these mistakes and you gotta make sure you're doing the right things. The last story I'll tell you about external pressures was I hired a new flight instructor. And uh, this was about seven months ago. And uh, this is a, a, a guy who was changing careers. I don't know exactly how old he was, but I'll say he was in his early 30s. Um, mature man, had gone through an accelerated program, wanted to be an airline pilot, and was in this speed mindset, right? And it, it was weird. When I interviewed him, the question I asked him, I said, have you ever flown for fun? And I had asked every flight that that I interviewed. And his answer was no, I've never, ever rented a plane in clothes. Every hour that he'd ever flown was for training purposes only. And that's a red flag for me now. Um, because it's, it, it tells me that you've never had to really think through external pressures. If it was a training exercise, someone's been thinking through that for you in, in most of those cases. Either a school or a CFI's been thinking through that for you. And so I kind of had him on a short leash. I had a lot of people watching him. We had a safety meeting where all we talked about, similar to this, we meet once a month and we do two hours. And the guy who had just flown in known icing presented his known icing. And we talked about making right decisions and not making bad decisions and thinking through all the information possible. And this guy is sitting in the room listening to everything we said. I knew he had a flight after that safety meeting with the student. And he was excited. This was his maybe second, third week uh, of flying at the flight school. Lots of pressure to make money and start supporting himself, right? I could sense it. But he went flu, and I went home. I'm laying in bed. I was either watching Facebook or something on my phone, laying in bed, trying to doze off, and my phone rang. And I didn't know the number, so I hit in. Phone rang again, same number. I hit in. I got a text message. Hey, I need you to call me back. Everything's okay, nothing got hurt. And I knew who it was. So I called him back. And he said, hey, we missed the runway. And I said, what? He goes, we came back and we missed the runway. And I told you this is a tower airport, Delta airspace. But now it's 1130. The tower closes at 10 o'clock. And I'm like, how did he miss the runway? I said, are you okay? Yes. Plane okay? Yes. The taxi's back. And if you if you know anything about Hooks Airport, to miss that runway, you've got to, you've got to crash this plane. There's nowhere to land. I mean, there's a water runway. So if you miss another runway, you're either in the water or you're in the woods. So it was, I was very perplexed. Get to the bicycle, inspect the plant. I literally find like one blade of grass in the brakes. My chiefs are with me now, or it's like 1230 at night. This guy walks me through the scenario, and he tells me almost immediately when I walk in the building, he goes, look, I've never landed here at night before. And I'm thinking, man, well, you can't check this common sense, right? But a flight instructor took one of my planes, took off. I also, by the way, had a full motion simulator where he could have, he could have landed there in the simulator 50 times the week before. But he chose to take off, fly to Kyle Station, land there, 
come back and land at our airport to teach a student all the things that make you a bad pilot at night, all the tricks that the, your eyes play on you, right? And guess what he was susceptible to? All those things. How many months do you think it was since that flight struck her at night? Six. Many more than that. Many more than that. Nineteen months since he had flown to night. And he thought it was the best decision after sitting through that safety meeting to go take a flight and land. He thought that the runway lights at my airport, my home airport, had three lights. Three lights. We do not have a three light system. Where would you find the lights at an airport? And, and what? Can you hear them? It's not that early. Where would you find it? Chart supplement. So let's see if I can even look at the chart supplement. He thought the, the taxiway lights were the right place. And as we debriefed this young man, mid-30s, I said, uh, talk me through it. He said, I came through, I had four white lights, and I kept trying to stay close to the right edge. I said, well, what, what's four white lights in me? well, I had four white lights. I want to be a little high at night. That's a little safer. That's where my instructors taught me. How high are you with four white lights? Anybody know? <laughs> Two high. How high? What if I have three white lights and one red light? Anybody know how high I am? What percentage I am? I think it's one and a half percent per light. I'm not a thousand percent sure. Somebody take me on that. But if four white lights, are you three percent? You can be three or fifty percent. You don't know how high you are. So you should go around, right? But he kept trying. That, that need, that external pressure to get on the ground. And I gotta land. Why not go around? Why not if you never landed there, at least make one low pass? Something, right? And he tried and tried and he kept trying. And he came within feet of a barricade between the two runways. And about 20 signs. Like the fact that they didn't die is just unbelievable. They landed at the perfect 20 feet of space between two taxiways and a runway and a whole bunch of signage. And just happened to kind of come up on the taxiway. Um, that was his last flight at our flight school, unfortunately. But he made, it wasn't like he went out there. You think he went out there and said, I want to try to crash this plane tonight with the city? Of course not. But when you're in the air and you haven't done everything to prepare, and he told me, and I don't know if any of you feel this way, but I'm a staunch non-believer in this, that there's some regulation, we'll talk to the chief, there's some regulation that says that a student really isn't a passenger, if you're a flight instructor, and so you're technically legal flying as a flight instructor with a student and that, that's garbage, right? Be proficient, be current. Don't, don't take no chances like that. The young man was flying with him, ultimately finished his private pilot certificate. I see him flying his family all the time now. And it's, it's humbling for me to sit there and watch him come into school and think how close he was to dying. But that's a mistake that you just can't make. To gather all the information you gather, don't feel those external pressures, and don't go fly if you're not a current proficient. Let me, let me tell you a story about Mark Hemming. Um, how many of you are either CFIs or, or CFI is in your future? Like, 
Probably most of the people, most of the people in this room. Okay, I was a young, dumb CFI, and uh, uh, working at a flight school, one of our linemen, who's, who's now a 737 captain, uh, came up to me and says, hey, I got this, this really good friend named Mark, and he wants to learn how to fly. He's a, he's a pop at a, uh, a town just about 15 miles away. And so Mark comes in, and um, he, uh, he, really good guy. Mark Hinton was his name, and, and uh, we hit it off. I mean, we were really, we were buddies, kind of the three of us, Jeff, the lineman, and Mark, and um, And uh, so he, he was flying a lot, and he wanted, you know, he just, all he wanted to do was fly, fly, fly. And um, he was, he was, you know, we sometimes used the, the phrase, a good stick, and, and usually that means that that's somebody who, doesn't really like to get into the books. And, and I was hard, but he, he was a good pilot. He was really, really a good pilot. Anyway, he, he got into the books, he passed all the stuff, he took his check ride, he's now a private pilot. We had two 150s at this flight school. And um, uh, Mark would, would take the one of the 150s and he would go fly and then he would come back. And, you know, where you go, I don't know. But anyway, so one day uh, he comes back and, and Jeff he goes, he says, man, look at the look at the wheel pants on uh, four lane Zulu. And I go over and look at them, and uh, they were there were lots of grass stains on them. And and Mark had just flown the airplane. I go and and I went up to him and said, Mark, I said, well, what are you doing? He goes, Well, hey, he goes, my, my girlfriend April, she's got uh, she's got like six acres. And I, I go land in the front yard and we have lunch. And, and me as the CFI, again, that was my opportunity to say, you're doing what? That's stupid. But me being his friend, what I said is, well, Mark, look, you're going to do that. Before you come back here, fly over to the Bastrop Airport. This is the Bastrop Airport right by the fuel tank. They have a hose and all kinds of washing. Wash the wheel pants off before you come back here. And he goes, oh, that's a good idea. Okay. So that's what Mark would do. He would, he would take off the airplane. He'd be gone for three hours. And you'd, you'd look at the hubs and he flew point eight. Well, he went and did whatever he did with his girlfriend over lunchtime, right? <laughs> So anyway, Mark ended up marrying April, and they had a little boy named Derek, and uh, Mark got his instrument, he got his commercial. Started flying freight at night. Uh, was flying a Baron at night. Uh, back in the day, there used to be this industry where you you had the, the, the Federal Reserve banks, it, it wasn't digitized, so these canceled checks were flying all around the country at night, and they had to go from Federal Reserve Bank to Federal Reserve Bank, and, a lot of us cut our teeth doing that. Anyway, I was a new hire pilot at uh, Continental Airlines. Was would have been like January of 1988. This is before cell phones. I'm on the layover in New York City, staying at the Milford Plaza in Times Square. I'm out Times Square eating pizza. Come back to the room. The light on my phone is blinking, and I pick it up, and it's Jeff. He's just saying, well, he's just getting to know that that means you have a message. Yeah. 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 Um, he says, hey, well, he's just getting on. 
And I could tell by his voice, this was not going to be a good call. I called him. He said, Mark's missing. This must be back 12 hours ago. And the weather here in Monroe was bad. We got ice in. About two and a half days later, I found Mark. He was dead. April's a widow. And Derek doesn't have a father. That was a long time ago. 35 years ago. Um, I think about it a lot. And I think about when I was the CFI. Did I plant the seed that, hey, breaking the rule is fine, just don't get caught? That's what I taught him. That's what I told him. Do I blame myself for Mark getting into icing conditions in an airplane that wasn't equipped for it? I don't know. I don't blame myself for that. But could I have made a difference? And, you know, I, I live my life. I, I live a really good life. But I think about that, I don't know, two or three times a week. I think about Mark. And he's not with us anymore. And, you know, I don't know about his kid. I don't know about Derek. I don't know about April. Um, I've looked for him on social media. I don't see him anywhere. But as CFIs, CFIs, the pecking order to a student, probably. Uh, this, I know this way it was with me, okay? God, and then right below God, make parents, and then right below that is your CFI. So CFIs, by you doing stuff, by you not doing stuff, you're saying to them, it's okay. It's okay. We at United Airlines, as, as check pilots, we have a red stripe on our ID. Okay, it says check pilot. So as, as you know, you're walking through the terminal, people see, oh, he's a check pilot. And they always tell us, you're wearing the hat. You're wearing the check pilot hat. You're, you're kind of, people look up to you. You know, you got to do things right. You got to do things right. You got to not just follow the rules, but you got to use common sense. So, you know, I get emotional when I talk about Mark. Okay? He's dead. All right, you don't come back from that. And I wonder, could I have made a difference? And because I was a stupid young CFI, um, you know, I taught him how not to get caught. I didn't teach, you know, my, my message was, don't do that. Anyway. So, sad story. We'll try to change gears a little bit. Um, number of you asked questions about check rides, thinking about past check rides, tips and tricks. You have a DVD sitting up here that you're probably never going to take a check ride with. We have a couple of microphones up here. If you guys, somebody wants to walk around and have people ask questions 
This is a DVD we've given over 800 check drives sitting up here. And you can ask him anything, and you're not going to get in trouble for it. And you're not going to be held accountable to it on your check drive. I have one question that I want to ask before that. Is Wayne an easy DVD or is Wayne a not easy DVD? Depends on the day. Depends on the day. I like it. Um, so, they're walking around with microphones. If you ask questions, I'm sure we'll find a way to throw you a t-shirt or something. But uh, what kind of questions, and if you want to, you can just yell them. Would you, ask, would you ask Wally if you could? Let me say this before this. Not only am I uh, uh, a check pilot behind, but I'm also on the hiring team, the interview team. Now, having said that, I haven't been trained to be interviewed because they can't release me from being a triple seven check pilot to go to do interviews. But I'm privy to all the emails and all the correspondence that goes on. And so I will tell you this, 86% of interviewees at United Airlines get a job off. Okay, 86%. So if you get the interview, it's kind of your job to lose. Okay, and I've asked people, I say, well, well, what causes people to not get the job? We know about the check rights, okay? We know if you got failed check rights. We don't have a problem with failed check rights. Not at all. What we have a problem with is, we'll ask, and say, hey, what happened on this instrument check right? And this is, this is, this happened. And, and the, the applicant said, well, the, uh, the check ride was on December 22nd, and, and the instructors just wanted to get out of town, so I wasn't ready, and they signed me off, and, and I went in and, and busted the check ride. Guess what? He was in the 14%. No job offers, accountability. The next person comes in, hey, what happened on this uh, commercial check run? Oh man, I blew it. I, 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 it was a bad day for me. I went out and I, I couldn't do a steep turn. I was plus or minus 1,500 feet on my steep turns. And I think the standards are a little bit tighter than that. And uh, man, I, 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 just, I just blew it that day. Okay. We all have bad days. Here, when would you like to start class? Okay. So take accountability. Busted check ride is not career ending. Now, four, five, six, maybe, 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 uh, maybe I'll be an accountant. I don't know. Anyway, questions. Sunset 
I sit there and go, burger and fries, chicken parmesan, burger and fries. And, and I have found myself doing this. Um, so, you know, I, I may, I, I have fun with it. What is the question, the biggest challenge? There is no challenge. I mean, I get to go to work, and you know, I get to fly this really big jet, and it's really cool. Um, uh, maybe managing your rest, maybe. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I spend a lot of time sleeping on my layovers. Um, and, you know, we have long layovers. I, I mean, I fly, though, I fly mostly international stuff, so it's not going to you know, go. Um, get to uh, Hawaii and uh, you know I have 29 hours so I've got plenty of time to get some good rest and you know if I come like coming back to Denver uh, it's only a 6 hour flight so we're on augmented in other words we don't have a relief pilot and it's in the middle of the night so that, that's a little bit of a challenge um, and you know you just gotta you gotta be aware of it. And um, if you're flying with a, a flying buddy, you know that will talk. It really helps. Um, and of course, most of the time we're doing OE, we're doing training with pilots, so we're, we're you know we're, we're talking a lot, so we're, we're staying engaged. Not everybody has 36 years seniority, so not everyone's only making decisions about food. A lot of the flight instructors that I see leave, I think what I hear as they come back, their challenges are, do I continue to stay in this, maybe this type aircraft or this role where now I kind of have some seniority, or do I keep trying to upgrade, right? And I see, I have seen in the last five years as the owner of a flight school, a number of people get stuck in different levels that they wish they wouldn't have got stuck in, right? That's, you're gonna have to make those decisions yourself with your family, but I think, as young pilots, I hear those things the most, right? I'm commuting, and in Chicago, I can pick a line, but I'm gone six days a week instead of four days a week. And they, they, they really struggle with those type of decisions because not everybody has the flexibility that maybe a Wally has with seniority and bidding, so. Well, yeah. and, and I, I, think, I think you gotta look at the, the, the goal down the road. I mean, you, you wanna have a successful career and let's say you have a, uh, a 10 o'clock showtime tomorrow morning and you need to commute, and there's one flight that'll get you there tomorrow morning, um, do you go up the night before and pay $120 for a hotel room, or do you put all your eggs in one basket and take that flight tomorrow morning? I'm always very conservative. I'm, gonna, I'm going the night before. Um, you know, is it worth jeopardizing a very nice career to save $120? Yeah, probably not. Next question. Oh, um, what's the uh, big thing that you look for in CFI initial check rides? Uh, that's a good question. I am not authorized to do initial CFI check rides, so I can't really answer that. And as of yesterday, I am finally authorized to do Add-ons, so um, I don't I don't do CFI check rights, so I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna try. 
I would say the ability to communicate. Um, uh, as as a, I watched my, I watched my daughters um, as CFIs. Neither one of my daughters would be, I wouldn't call them technical experts, um, but I think both of them have pretty good interpersonal skills. And I watched my oldest daughter one time debriefing a student. I was sitting in the corner, and um, she, she did a debriefing and did the logbook. And at the end of the flight, she said to the student, she said, did you have fun today? And I thought, brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, of course, you do want to have fun. I think going back to what we started said at the very beginning, why do we give into this? I think because we think airplanes are fun, airplanes are fun. I sit, I sit in a lot of debriefs of DBs and do-do officials, and I, I would say the common theme that I hear from people that don't pass on their first attempt is that they probably haven't challenged us. They haven't been challenged enough. They go read the books, they've been instructed by an instructor, so they've gotten, they've got the knowledge, but they haven't taught it enough times, or they haven't shared it enough times with people that are actually asking them questions about what do you really mean? So that when you get into the check ride with a guy who's got 25,000 hours and asks you questions and knows how the wing works better than you'll probably ever know how the wing works, and they say, explain how the wing works, and you teach it exactly like you've been taught it, and they ask you two or three things that to explain you haven't ever explained before, that's where the, the CFI initial check ride started to go off the rails. So the, the encouragement that I've heard many, many times in the past few months is make sure that the groups that are working on flight structure certificates are teaching each other, are asking each other questions, are challenging each other. What do you mean by that? How does that really work? Does the prop really take a bigger bite? Or is the relative wind different when the prop's on the downstroke? Right? Like, those sorts of things will make you a much better instructor than just being able to have the book knowledge and, and repeating what's going to be that. And, and I think as a good instructor, I think a good instructor has the ability to adjust their teaching style based on their student. Um, you know, you, we've all seen the look. You know, you're, you're, you're talking to someone and they just don't get it. Okay, well that's now my job. I gotta figure out another angle to come at this person. I mean, because my maybe my standard presentation isn't working. I gotta I gotta figure out another way to teach them how to do this. So I think a, a good CFI can do that. Those two guys ask questions, come get us here for a coffee cup or something while others are asking questions. Yes, sir. That's a great question. I do, I do say this a lot, and I, I think the biggest mistake I made was I didn't care about the bookwork when I was a student pilot. Um, I, I wanted to fly for fun. I wanted to, I wanted to take my family to Austin. That was, I got this one singular goal, I think, to take my family to Austin, go eat dinner with my daughter when she was a UT student. And I didn't think about the future in any other capacity than can I get to Austin back safely. And then what happened right after my private college certificate was I got stuck where I couldn't take a trip because of the 2,000 foot ceiling. So I signed up for my insurance the next day. Right? And I never did enough studying 
to really know what I needed to know. Fast forward five years, I own a flight school, and I'm challenged in many, many different ways by many different students. I'm on a podcast where I get asked a lot of questions, and I don't know the book work like well in most of And I really regret not spending more time knowing the knowledge component of flying, um, because I know it would make me a better pilot. And I, now that I'm trying to get my flight instructor certificates, I fight every day to learn some things that I probably should have known better early on. And I don't know how you encourage students about that, because it's, it's the one thing we all, we all hate. I see everybody come in every day and go fly. I don't see too much studying being done in my flight school. Um, but you, you should really try to tell them that the bookwork is what makes a great pilot. A good state pilot is obviously good, but it's not, they're not really great pilots if they don't know the books. I remember discovering a book. I, I, I distinctly remember this. It was a Friday night, and I didn't. I was stuck at home. I didn't have anybody to go do anything with. I didn't have a date or what. I mean, I was in college, and I picked up this this book that was sitting on my desk called the FARAIM. I started reading the, the AIM part, and, and it was like, man, there's some really good stuff in here. And, you know, I was I was well into my instrument training. I'm going. Jeez, this is, it's actually easy reading and just some really, really good stuff. I mean, I don't know if you're going to read it cover to cover, but as a reference, um, and there's good stuff in there. Good question. I'll get some. This guy right here. He's oh, okay. So USBP, what characteristic or like quality in an applicant do you recognize that makes you think or helps you decide whether this person, he or she, is going to do well today in this check ride? Um, you know, right off the bat, just, just well, well, first of all, when, when, you, when you do a check ride with me, you're going to get an email from me. And uh, there's about a page long email, and it says things in there like, make sure you sign all your pages in your logbook. Okay, so first thing I do is get the log book. We got 27 pages and not one page is Sunday. So that tells me right now, hey, you didn't read my letter. I took the time to compose the letter, but you didn't, you didn't read it. So, um, uh, it, it, you know, I'm not going to say it, it skews things, but right off the bat, I'm kind of thinking, well, this person can't follow the simple directions. Um, I, I like, I like, you know, I'm going to put you in situations, scenarios that are out of your comfort zone. You know, I'm going to say, what's what's our takeoff weight? What's our max takeoff weight? And I'd say, okay, I want to bring my dog Lufus. He weighs 77 pounds. Can he go with us? And we're going to be 24 pounds over gross weight. And, you know, most of people will say, no, he can't go. I mean, I really, really want him to go. Well, we're landing at our fuel stop with 24 gallons, you know? I want them to think, uh, well, hey, we don't need to land with 24 gallons. We can land with 20 gallons and take four gallons off, and that's 24 pounds, and, and we'll get some goings. So, um, you know, I want, I just, I just want them to, to, to be able to think. I mean, whatever it is, I'm going to try to push you out of your comfort zone. And, uh, okay, you know what? We're not going there. We're going there. What do you think about that? And, uh, you know, we're going to look at that. So it, it is preparation, a thousand percent. People that come prepared for a check ride, people that have talked to the maintenance logs and really understand them and know them, people who 
have taken pictures of the registration card and the airworthiness certificate and have them printed out, ready to go, those people always do really, really good in check rides. So uh, I'm sure the school, I know the ACS has a checklist. If you use that checklist to prepare for a check ride, if you're really prepared, you're going to be a lot better off than, than the people that come in and they haven't done that due diligence before the ride. Yeah, and if it's a morning check ride, breakfast tacos are always welcome. What's the worst part about being a DPE? The, the paperwork that we have to do pre and post flight. I mean, um, you know, most of the time it's not that big a deal, but we have to, we got this other computer system other than IACRA, and we have to go in and we got to put your name and all this stuff. And we basically have to get approval, and, you know, and, and I think most of the DPEs are an auto approval. As soon as you hit submit, you get approved. But then when the check ride is over, you've got to go back in. And, and uh, so sometimes uh, a lot of these numbers match. We might be in a, you, you said that we're going to be in a 172N, but then we end up in a 172S. And I forgot to change that on the pre approval, so now I got to deal with my FAA guys say, then, yeah, it was a 172N, and then it ended up being, ended up being it's, it's, it's just that stuff. Um, nothing, nothing horrible. I mean, uh, just a, a gentleman the other day says, do you enjoy being a DPD? And I said, well, it's not slavery. I mean, I'm not, I, you know, they're not making me do this. If I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it. I mean, all I, if I want to stop being a DPD today, all I got to do is quit. So, um, I, you know, I love it. I, I, I like, I like working with people like you guys. And I don't know, maybe, you know, I want to make a difference. I want to head off the next mark, okay, if I can, okay? If you ask he kind to run out of stuff, yes, sir. <laughs> Um, I, I don't really feel any pressure, um, uh, you know, we, we have the ACS, uh, Airman Cert Certification Standards, which basically is the test, and, and the ACS is the test, um, you know, it has the standards in there, um, so I don't, um, I, I, I can't say I feel any pressure. Green flags. Um, I, I flew for a, a guy that that said you need to be mission oriented. Okay, and and I want you know again if we want a hundred percent safety, we're not going to go. We're not going to fly at all. So I want us. You know I want. Especially at the, the higher level, when we start talking about commercial uh, applicants, you know, I, I want you to, you know, we're sitting in a, in a room, in a very sterile room, during the ground portion, and, you know, I might give you reasons not to go, but, you know, I, I want you to try to be, you know, if someone's going to pay you to fly their airplane, you, you need to have a let's go 
mindset. And that's, that's where it gets gray. I mean, is it safe? Well, if it's not safe, then don't go. But, you know, like just with the dog, we're 24 pounds overweight, we can't go. Well, we can go. We, we just have to make some adjustments. So I want, you know, I'm looking for the applicant to find, read, you know, okay. We go out, we do a run up on one of the mags, the engine's running rough. Where are we gonna go? Oh, we're gonna take back in and have maintenance look at it. Okay, well suppose maintenance is not there today. Oh, we're gonna, we're gonna cancel the flight. Okay, is, does our airplane have a spark plug cleaning procedure? Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Let's do it. Of, but um, you know, and it all starts with 
our airplane. I mean, um, we're flying along and all of a sudden we got zero on the suction gauge. Well, what does that mean? What are we going to lose? What, what instruments are we going to lose? And are they just going to die immediately or is it going to be a slow death? Um, so, you know, um, I, I do see systems as, as being uh, probably a weak point, um, especially at the private level. Um, you know, uh, young man the other day, I, I said, uh, ask how the heater worked. And all I want is, well, it's, there's a pipe around the exhaust, and we take that hot air that gets warmed up by the exhaust, and we vent that into the cabin. That's all I want. I mean, you don't have to use the fancy word shroud. Um, just, we, you know, it's a pipe around a pipe. Um, but what he told me is, is, he says, we vent exhaust air into the cabin. I said, oh, so we're, we're breathing exhaust air. And he goes, yeah, but it's filtered. I go, oh, that's <laughs> And if, you're, if you ask, if you're asking, I think I heard you say, too, is like, how do you get the experience? You know, there's this, uh, I was a technology sales guy for many years. People that really knew technology really knew the fundamentals of old technology, right? Because everything built new is still based on what we, we did 20 years ago in technology. And I think that's very similar in the system that we have today. Like, why is there a vacuum system on these planes? Because it worked in the 40s, it worked in the 50s, it worked in the 60s, and it's still really reliable today. And that's why we use that vacuum system. And all those instruments work because those gyros are going to always work. And there's always going to be gyros in things, right? So I think, I don't think it's a bad thing you might be working on old, air, old aircraft because you're going to gain that experience. When you get to jets, they're going to put you through the right training if you want to be a mechanic on jets. You don't have to get your foot in the door there to be really good at what you need to do. And I would say general aviation needs mechanics and it's dwindling every day and you, you can probably have a long career in GA if you wanted to be working on GAs. Like uh, only engines aren't going anywhere. Trust me. I'm I'm looking at buying a 1946 airplane right now. 1946. I mean that's older than me. It'll have a like only engine. Yes. How important are First impressions. I would say they're very important. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see anybody in this room wearing an AirPod, but I think on my son, who's 18 right now, every time we walk into a public place and a kid's wearing an AirPod, it tells me a really quick story about how much they care or don't care about what I'm about to spend my money on, right? You go into Walmart and they're, the person checking you out is wearing an AirPod, makes me sick to my stomach. That, that's a terrible impression, right? I think uh, uh, I, we just did a uh, you want to be a CFI uh, event at my flight school not too long ago to try and help people understand how to, how to approach a flight school owner, whether it's me or someone else. You know, I get a resume almost every day for a flight instructor job. Every resume says I have 250 hours. I know you have 250 hours if you're going to apply to be a flight instructor at my flight school. I would like to know something else about you. I would like to see more about why you love aviation. You know, tell, tell a little bit different story because that first impression is going to make a difference. If it's the same black and white piece of paper that I have 250 hours, I got my CFIA, you, you don't look any different, right? I think that impression is going to make a big, big difference. I would also say that to the students that you're going to meet, right? 
Are you are you excited to be their flight instructor? I, I think instructors go through the, these four phases that I talk about on my onboard. My instructors, I won't belabor it, but it goes from really hungry to not hungry. I'm going and leaving your school, right? There's got to be a balance there. Those students are why you're going to the airlines. They paid you to build all that time, right? Be excited and make a good first impression on all the students when you meet them too. Yeah, I mean, first impressions. Uh, you know, um, you know, I'm old. And I guess I'm old school, um, but you know, I, I was taught that you don't ever, ever shake someone's hand while sitting down. And uh, I, I can't help remember my father uh, just telling me, you don't ever shake someone's hand without standing up. And I, I walk in and check right all the time and say, hey, I'm all in. And the, the, the applicant just. And I think about my dad, and I'm, I'm trying. You know, is it going to make a difference? No, it's not going to make a difference. If they meet the standard, they're going to pass. If they don't, they're not. But you know, are we kind of starting off like, well, yeah, maybe we are, and maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe I shouldn't admit that. But that's how I feel. We just got a ten-minute warning, so yes, Sam, on the side. Well, the ACS says that you can exceed a um, parameter if, in a timely manner, you get back to it. And I tell people um, right off the bat that this is not going to be a perfect flight. Um, by you managing your mistakes, um, you probably maybe even show me more. So um, when my when my oldest daughter got her private pilot certificate, I was not a DPD at the time. Um, and I, I'm, I can't give my kids check rides anyway, but we were driving home from her check ride, and, and, and just through circumstances, she had three different flight instructors. Counting me, she had four, because we had flown together, and we, you know, I'd sign it off as dual given, but I didn't really count myself as a flight instructor. And, but I said to her, I don't know why I said this, but I said, Michelle, who was your favorite flight instructor? And I was talking about Michael, Clay, and Dave, and she said, you. And I said, what? Me? Why me? And she said, because you let me screw up. She said, I used to get so mad at you because I would be sitting there and I'd look over at you and say, what should I do? And she said, you would do this. And she said, I got so mad at you. I, I, I would go home just seething because you wouldn't, you wouldn't tell me what to do. She says, but I learned two things. She said, I learned, A, if I made a mistake, how to fix it. And then B, just don't make a mistake, okay, is the easiest way to do it. She said, my other instructors would, you know, if I was about to do something wrong, they would go, whoa! She said, you would just let me screw up. And so, I think you learn more by your mistakes. Um, it, it used to scare me with both my daughters. Uh, they, would, they would come home from flying and I would say, I would always say, have you scared yourself yet? And for a long time, they come home and they go, no. And I used to go, oh, God. And then when they finally came, God, I scared myself. This happened and this happened. Well, what'd you do? I did this and this and this. I go, great. All right, so now we've scared ourselves and we've managed it, okay? 
So to your question, a lot of times too, when I talk to students after they've left the debrief with Wally, the conversation is always, I hear his side and then I hear their side, right? And it's, his side is always, they just lost it. They went completely berserko. They tried to do things that weren't even part of the flight anymore. And I think that the key is, is Wally's just a normal guy. People don't believe that because they, they're spending a lot of money to take a check ride. It's a big, big day. But Wally puts on his shoes and socks just like we put them on. And he's a real human being, and he knows you're not going to be perfect. So I think it, when you make a mistake on a check ride, whether you're a CFI check ride or a private pilot check ride, recognizing it and then doing what would be the best thing to overcome that and, and owning it, much like he said earlier, I think that's what's going to be the best outcome for, for the flight. For sure. And don't tell the DB you made a mistake, because half the time I don't even know it. Like, oh, I just did that. Oh, okay, well, I'll make a note of that. I won't talk about that. Don't tell me. Yes, sir. Oh, that's Scott, what a great question. Um, that is one reason why I am so, so anal with my applicants about proper phraseology. Uh, just about a month ago, we were going into Frankfurt, and our, our flight number had a zero in it. And, um, you know, it's, um, uh, I guess I was flying, because he was talking, and, um, he, he was calling us uh, United 307, and uh, the, the Frankfurt, the German controller says, oh, so that's 307. And I, I said, oh, I guess he told you. Uh, so yeah, it, it is a problem. What you got to understand is a lot of times the person that you're talking to on the other end isn't even a controller. They're not an air traffic controller. They may be a clerk. And you're talking to a clerk who is now relaying that information to an air traffic controller. That clerk is doing nothing more than filling out a spreadsheet. So like you're given a position report, okay? So, uh, and, and, and a, a lot of times, well, you know, English is the aviation standard, worldwide aviation standard. But you may be over, uh, you know, the middle of Africa in the middle of the night, and this guy's or girl's native language is Swahili or something, and so you're going off and you're using, uh, you know, English slang. I give, I give the example of, uh, you know, Bobby's flight school. They do some foreign students. They do a lot of Koreans, and so if I walked up to just a, a normal uh, Kentucky guy wearing a Bucky's hat and said, "Sup, bro?" You know, or, sup, bro? You know, I, I, I don't really talk like that, but I think, I think he would understand that I'm saying hello, sort of. If I went up to one of the Korean guys and did that, they, they would fall out of the seat. Sup, bro? Where's, what's that? So, you know, you gotta, you got to see very square. You can, and, you know, again, you get to foreign countries, and it's big mountains, middle of the night, and you're talking to a controller, if it's even a controller, uh, the radio reception maybe isn't bad, so you've got to stay within the box of the standard phraseology. You know, squawk 1200. No, don't squawk 1200, 1200. 
from week 32. No, from week 32. Okay, so that's kind of a big. We're gonna, we're gonna take one more question before we do. Before we do, we gotta take a selfie. So I don't get to be in front of it. Because this doesn't get posted on social media. It doesn't count, right? Yeah. Do, do a silence. He's never used Snapchat. Hang on. Oh, Snapchat. I will use a real camera for all of Alright. The only ask that I have is if you go subscribe to our podcast. We appreciate you guys having us. We already take one more question. So go subscribe to the podcast. Please uh, download and share with your aviation friends. And family members, man, so many hands. Who to pick from? Um, yellow shirt. Yeah. The color behind the prop, by the way. So, the Great question. I, 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 I don't think as, do you mind sharing how old you are? 19. At 19, you have no clue how much life you have left. And it seems so busy. It seems like it's such a, it's all right here, right now. I gotta get this done today, tomorrow. Just to give you an example, when I was 19, I had no future, no plans, nothing going on in my life. Um, I, I went to Avenue Christian University, couldn't afford it, quit. It was literally vicious. I had no idea what to do. Then I became a dispatcher. Then I was a police officer in Houston for seven years. Then I became a tech guy and I installed software. Then I became a sales guy. And now I'm a flexible. Like, whatever you're worried about and whatever you're trying to stay motivated by, there's plenty of runway, pun intended, for you to accomplish those goals. At 19, People would kill to go to my flight school at 30. They would kill to be 19 working on their ratings to be able to be an airline pilot at 21, 22, 23, 24, right? So I think the, the, the thing is to stay motivated because you have so much time and it might be discouraging because it's the grind that you're going through. But if it wasn't this grind, it would be some other grind. You'd be in the other building trying to memorize the entire Kentucky penal code and trying to do the same thing, and they would be taking domestic violence classes and dealing with all the other stuff. There's, whatever the grind is, there's going to be another grind. Just so that you guys and girls are so freaking lucky. My wife wouldn't let me fly. You guys are, your parents, whoever's letting you do this, is letting you do this. You have, the, you have the opportunity to fly triple sevens around the world and make a lot of money deciding whether you want to have a hamburger or chicken parmesan, right? The, the, the opportunities are endless. So while the grind might be tough now, I think you just don't know how short a window of time this is. People in my flight school complain all the time about the weather. I can't solo. I can't get my solo cross country done. I'm sure everybody at Eastern Kentucky University hears that all the time. It's such a short time. I don't remember that, but I know I went through it. But it's a short time in your aviation career, and this is going to be a really short time too. And enjoy this. Embrace the time at EKU. You know, when you get back, give them money, okay? Because they need money. I mean, 
you're you're gonna remember you're gonna remember your classmates. I mean, you may not remember uh, everything from the books, but you're gonna remember when you were sitting in a seminar next to Fred and you farted, and it, you know you know remember that. And, and 20 years from now, you're gonna remember that. So so just just stop and look around. It's just like in, in the airplanes, you know. Uh, well, look out the window. I'm out of this 1946 airplane I'm, I'm about, maybe about to buy. I, I doubt I'll ever go higher than 2,000 feet in it. And certainly not over 100 knots. So it's low and slow, and I'm so looking forward to just looking out the window. Last thing, another line of questions. We both have email addresses. We're welcome to help you. We're welcome to answer your questions. We're welcome to have you on future shows. My email address is Bobby, B-O-B-U-Y, at BehindTheProp.com. Easy enough, this is Wally, W-A-L-L-Y, at BehindTheProp.com. Don't hesitate to send us your questions. We'll turn them into future shows. We'll do everything we can to support Eastern Kentucky University for many years to come. And we hope that you support our show as well. Thank you so much to the, the faculty and all of you for having us out today. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe.